Hello, welcome to 360 Yourself, the podcast show centered around self-awareness and improvement. I'm Jamie Neal, host of 360 Yourself. So, a little bit of information of how the podcast came about. In 2014, I had a breakdown and was hospitalized. Too much work, too much anxiety, too much coffee, and not enough self-care. In the hospital, lying there with my thoughts, I had to rethink my entire way of life. The doctor said I was overworked and my body just gave up. Now, I'm not gonna say it wasn't scary, but it was a bit of a turning point for me. From there, I started to rebuild myself, reading hundreds of self-help books and questioning everything from, why do we have triggers? Why do we have egos? What is manifesting and what is identity? Many years later, someone recommended that I start a podcast because I've always been interested about how others lead their lives. And thus, 360 Yourself was born, interviewing incredible minds about how they understand themselves and how they utilize their knowledge and awareness to set out into their space. 360 Yourself is a dedicated podcast meeting brilliant and curious minds and looking at the world around them. I speak to artists, musicians, sports athletes, authors, CEOs, and experts in human behaviors, released every Sunday at 12 p.m. I ask questions about their mindset, journey, values, and ethos to fully understand how each of their minds work. How can we become more of ourselves to grow to the ultimate person we know we can be? If you do enjoy the episodes that you're listening to, please visit our Instagram page at 360 underscore yourself to let us know what you like and how you're learning. Or you can email us jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. That's jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. Hey, Tim, how are you doing? Marvellous, thanks. Great. I think you're probably already a bit tired of me already because I've already asked you like a bunch of questions beforehand because I'm so fascinated with what, what you're doing. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm I'm super, super, super excited to really delve into your pretty much your entire kind of career of pivoting to different areas and also what you're exploring now, which is quite uh, a big thing for me is because I'm massive, I'm a massive foodie. I'm a, I'm a big foodie lover. But I was saying like when I when I was at ballet school years and years and years ago, food was a massive part of my life. Um, and I and I also now love to train. I like to do workouts. I love to go to the gym. I love to run. So I need to be making sure that I put the correct fuel in my body. And so I know a lot about food and and the the nourishment it need, you need to have uh, for your body to do the things that you need to do, especially in the gym as well when it comes to fitness. Um, but I'm fascinated also to know about your other research over the years as well. Um, but. I just want to say thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. So let's start with um, so your current your current book, that, which I love, which I read called The Food for Life. So let me just ask. So how did you get into this this particular area right this second? How did you get into this area to explore? And also, I think it's I think also think it's quite a very current conversation as well about food and like making sure you're eating properly you're eating the right thing for your body because i think there's been a lot of myths about diets and the correct nourishment for your body yeah you got about 10 questions in there in one but i'll, I'll sorry I, there's so many questions i want to ask you sorry carry on I'll, I'll sort of start from the beginning and then yes see how that which in a way and my sort of my sort of career journey also mirrors in a way I think, you know, nutrition in that um, I trained as a doctor, trained as a rheumatologist, was interested in why people got cancers or heart disease or um, other 
immune conditions and so studied epidemiology, which, as we know from COVID, is a study of populations. And uh, I did quite a lot of research and then realized that to get a proper job, I had to sort of go back into clinical medicine. So I, I finished my training in rheumatology, which is bones and joints, and became a consultant uh, in that and got a job in a teaching hospital uh, at St. Thomas's Hospital. And then at that time, uh, I decided to do some big project, a sort of change of my research direction, if you like, uh, where I'd been studying hormones and menopause and arthritis. Uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to study twins. And I always like to study things that I think there's a niche rather than what, you know, everyone studies heart disease and fats and cholesterol. So uh, at that point, at that point in time, no one was studying twins in the UK at all. And so I said, this is a very ripe area because everyone in, in sort of science and epidemiology loves the concept of a twin study because it's like a natural human experiment. You take, uh, you know, pairs of identical twins, you compare them with pairs of fraternal twins, and you see how similar or different they are for any trait you can measure. So once I discovered this, it was like I was a, a kid in a, you know, a, in a sandpit. I could just uh, do anything I like with the same model. And I started with bones and joints and, you know, found out how much was nature, how much was nurture. Turns out most things, 50% genetic, 50% environment is the average. Um, and then started doing a few wacky things, um, looking at the genetics of, uh, sense of humor, the genetics of religion, and genetics of uh, politics, right-wing versus left-wing views, you know, most of which have some genetic basis. And so um, I was doing this until, and then I got more interested rather than finding things being genetic and sort of busting old-fashioned myths about old age. You probably heard it, you know, uh, why do ballet dancers get arthritis? You know, you were told, well, that's just, you know, wear and tear and age. And therefore, if that was true, every ballet dancer would get exactly the same arthritis after, over time. We know that's not true. So mm. I was showing that actually there's a big genetic component plus the stress on the body, but some people cope with it much better than others. Um, and it was that kind of work that we were doing. And that, but then I started getting interested in why, you know, and I was, basically telling everybody who, who would listen to me how genetic everything was. I was a real genetics bore. And so um, I got to this point. Then I started thinking, well, am I right? Because I have all these identical twins who are clones, uh, you know, eating the same food for 18, 18 years, lived in the same house, went to the same school. And they're often different. Often one can be overweight, the other one skinny, one depressed, one happy. One goes on to get cancer, the other one doesn't. You know, they die at different ages. Um, so that was kind of weird. So I then spent time looking, say, what was the magic thing that was different? And then that's where I came across the microbiome. So this is about uh, 13 years ago, I guess. And the microbiome is this community of gut microbes we all have that is like this virtual organ in our bodies. And is really quite crucial for our health, which we can discuss later. But we hadn't known until I did these studies that everyone was quite so different, even identical twins. So 
of all the things I've been studying in 30 years, it's the thing that differs most in identical twins. So that to me was a bit of an aha moment. I suddenly said, oh, that might explain why nutrition has been so confusing, why everyone doesn't um, slim down on the same diet, why, you know, we have this huge variety in responses to our food and why we haven't really managed to nail down what's good and bad for our health and possibly why we're all getting uh, fatter and fatter every year in most countries. So that uh, that was happening at the same time I I was on a ski touring uh, holiday in the in the Italy at high altitude and I had a mini stroke and at the top that I got double vision and uh, I went through a bit of a a crisis for three months not really knowing how severe it was my blood pressure went up and I was on lots of tablets and I suddenly said you know what I need to get to grips with my own health as well um I want to survive you know for more, longer than my father did because my father died young and I said I need to do that I really need to learn not about the epidemiology of nutrition but what should I be eating myself mm -hmm. um how much should I be exercising? What, should, what lifestyle changes do I need to survive um, into you know, a decent old age with good quality? So that's those two events came together. And I and so I I used to write books on genetics. And I suddenly said, right, my next book's going to be on diet and microbiome. And that's where I wrote my first book called The Diet Myth. And really, that was the point when I suddenly taught myself nutrition, uh, and became this sort of expert in gut health and put all my effort in my research team as well at, at King's College London into uh, discovering more and more about how the, the gut, our gut health is so important for us uh, in normal people. And that was really that that's that story. And it's luckily for me, I backed a winner and it turns out that it wasn't a fad and that you know, gut microbiome has been a huge uh, scientific explosion. And we can now measure it in tens of thousands of people. And everyone's talking about it now, which they weren't 10 years ago. And we suddenly all know about fermented foods. And so it, it's really hit that point um, that then coincided. Uh, so this is going really well. I gave, I was giving a talk six years ago uh, um at in london two guys in the audience came up to me and said we love your ideas about my microbiome being individual and how that might lead to personalized health and personalized nutrition uh we'd love to form a company together and that that's how the company zoe came together this personalized nutrition company based on ai and um you know sort of precision nutrition working out on the basis that everyone is different, how do you work out what things people should be eating to uh, be healthy? And so that that journey with the company as well has given us the money to do massive studies that we couldn't do just with um, government funds and charity funds. And so we're now in this amazing position where uh, the company Zoe Limited is doing incredibly well. We've sold 70,000 test kits we now have the biggest microbiome database in the world and we're doubling every three months or so and uh this is all taken off also with the success of my uh, my books as well the latest one uh, food for life uh, 
which is giving more people a, a hint of what personalized nutrition looks like and how it incorporates with microbiome. So it's, it's all these things that come together just at the right time, taking advantage of technology, AI, computing. A lot of it is luck. But it just all happened at the same time. Wow. I, is 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 it luck though? I think I talk to a lot of people about luck or being prepared with enough tools that when the opportunity arises, then you are able to take that opportunity and run with it. But you but you actively sought out tools to better yourself and put yourself in spaces to increase the chances of said luck that's what i think no yeah it's it's not random luck but i could have made all this effort and it turns out the technology of say measuring the microbiome was still some way off and never got cheaper or better and uh it, it just you know and it got a bad name and it it would take another 10 years to take off so um so yes you have to be prepared you've got to find the niche mm -hmm. and in a way my skill is not being in particularly bright i'm much more likely to be surrounded by brighter people than me but i am quite good at opportunity you know spotting opportunities and going for them and but so i think but i think in, in that career, self is quite smart though being an opportunity being an opportunist is smart uh well it's what yes it's one form of intelligence if you like but um yeah. you know I'm surrounded by inc incredibly intelligent people who I regard, you know, uh, their brains are functioning at a higher level mathematically and scientifically. Um, and I, I'm just dumbing it down and saying, well, actually, you know, some of they, they often can't see the wood for the trees and I, you know, and I can um, get the bigger picture better than they can. But so, but we, it needs both people, you know, both uh, types of person, I think, to succeed. So, Indeed, but yeah. I mean, is that that, fam that famous cook? What's her name? Uh, is it Ju Julie? Wal Julie? What's her name? That famous chef uh, that took French cuisine to the American market. What's her name? Is it Ju? Is Julie? Isn't it? Who opened um, Chez Panisse? Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And she made a book. She made like a French cuisine book for the American market. And there's there's films and TV shows. I always think I always think about her, right? I don't think she was she was any less skilled than anyone else, but she just was an opportunist and she basically took what she knew and was clever enough and smart enough to be able to repackage it to people to make people understand it. And if you can do that with the knowledge that you've acquired over however many years and then repackage it to make people like myself, who's not as educated and as informed as you are, then I think you're as smart as everyone else. I guess so. You also have to have failed a few times. So oh uh, yeah. My... Not all of my ideas have been brilliant ones. And so, you know, when I was into genetics, I had various ideas for, you know, personalized vitamin companies and uh, based on your genetics. And uh, these things all came to nothing. And a, another forensic uh, company, you know, again, it failed. So, but yeah, you see, so you have to be prepared to fail as well, I think. Of course. I mean, Simon Cow, the famous, famous media mongol, uh, mogul, uh, failed many, many times. And he actually lived back with his mother and his parents at 31, I believe, or 32, and then found the strength and found sort of his niche back then. But in quote, he says he failed at that point. But I think failure is important. And also like to do, into terms of like failure within your own health as well. It's I always find it. I had I had basically had um 
uh, burnout when I was like 21, 22, which, which basically started my self-help journey. And I think if I didn't fail then in understanding my body and my health, I wouldn't be at the knowledge that I am now because I wouldn't have t- put more effort and more time into learning about psychology and about mindfulness and meditation and food and all that sort of stuff so i also think there's an element of like you really need to like fail or get to close get to close um proximity of failure within your health your body to really make an actual change because i think change and growth only comes from when you are at the brink of destruction probably true although you know they can be painful to go through so it's not like you i was I don't wish it on anyone else, of course. But so, so the the company Zoe was born out from COVID. Was that is that correct? No, it was pre-COVID. So six years ago is when it. These two guys, uh, George and Jonathan, came to see me at my talk, mm-hmm. and they they and then they said we'd love to for this foot company. I said, I don't want to get another approach from a company. Just wants to do personalized medicine stroke nutrition based on marketing where they just throw lots of money at ads have an advisory board with lots of uh you know good looking doctors and scientists and um uh, you know use other people's data so i said we need several million pounds just to do the basic studies properly to see if people respond differently to the same food mm-hmm. and uh, i thought i'd never see them again but they came back with like four million pounds and and so let's get going and so that was very very exciting moment so we we were doing this we just published our our papers and one of the things of the company is we you know i i was very keen on is that we publish everything unlike many uh, companies in this space and we involve other scientists we share the data etc etc so it's very transparent what we're doing and we published these two successful papers. We were just going to carry on the follow-up when COVID hit and um, we had to shut down everything. And uh, this was so obviously uh, March, 2020, mm-hmm. uh, nearly three years ago now. And, you know, I had the idea cycling home on that day, a very depressing day that we should uh, try and get a COVID app out there uh, to help the people in the UK to, you know, somehow tell us about their symptoms and, you know, use some of our skills we were we were developing with our nutrition app in the same way. And um, the team, amazingly, the Zoe team, there was only about 25 of them at the time, just said yes. And the whole team worked five days, day and night. And we had an app out five days later that got downloaded, you know, a million people in the first 24 hours. Wow. Two million first week eventually went up to four and a half million people. And, you know, one was, was one of the big successes of, of COVID and it's still running today. And uh, it was a totally free app. There was no, you know, no commercial side to it at all. Um, and it uh, was a huge success and got the name and the brand of Zoe out there. Mm-hmm. As and I was doing weekly videos and people were listening to me all the time and got, you know, I think my my voice put them to sleep. It was very soothing. They said in the times of crisis, um, and I was, you know, I was. We were fighting the government. We were saying this isn't the true, you know, these are not the real symptoms. Uh, don't listen to them. You know, we were being very 
independent, if you like, fiercely independent, and, mm-hmm. and people trusted us. And so that that's really, that's what happened. And uh, obviously we've dropped down from about 4 million people who gave us the data, but we're still on about 400,000 who are still logging, telling us about colds and flus. And we've now converted that app into a free um, sort of myth-busting app about health habits. Right. So you can go see whether having a, you know, uh, meditating for five minutes actually improves your mood or not, or your hunger or whether yeah. standing on one leg or whether going to sleep half an hour earlier or, you know, intermittent fasting helps you. And you can see yeah. how hundreds of thousands of other people are also doing the same thing. So I think we've managed trying to keep this community spirit that works so well in COVID. Yeah. Um, to look at these other, you know, these health issues that, you know, gurus are always telling us uh, are crucial, but no one ever does any studies on. What, what's the what's the biggest myth that you can say that people think about? Exercise helps you lose weight. I think we're probably the we yeah. high up there. Um, yeah. I think that that's probably the one or, or, or the other is, yeah, if you can reduce your calories, you know, that's a good way. Reducing calories is a good way to lose weight as well. Is is you know, low calorie diets are, are, mm. are good. What, one what, of those two, which is one, more- one of the things that I was having uh, a conversation with my friends over dinner, and this, I, you you'd be able to probably solve this this question. If people say that you shouldn't be eating food after six pm on on, on on whatever day it is, right? But then different cultures in Spain, Italy. They don't stop start eating until 10, 11, 30 at night. So they're eating at 12 o'clock at night. And I know that um, sometimes I'll graze or I'll eat something at 12 o'clock and I feel really heavy the next day. But then science and people tell you that you shouldn't really be eating past 6 p.m. But in other cultures, they eat past. So who's right? Uh, I'd say neither. It's a mixture of both. The, the original data uh, showing that you should eat all your meals early in the day, you know, breakfast like a king, you know, lunch like a prince and, you know, uh, supped like a, a, a peasant or whatever it was. Uh, it was based on a 30-year-old study on about 10 students and they were all young. And it turns out that when you look at the wider population, you see much more variation between people in terms of how well they metabolize food. So in general, the eating your food in the in the in the day rather than in the night makes uh, more metabolic sense but there are exceptions and for example I when I tested myself I, I metabolize my food better in the evening than at lunch uh, I don't have as many sugar peaks but uh, you shouldn't go to bed on a full stomach uh, as many people in southern Italy and Spain do uh, because your body's still working hard to process that food when it should be resting. I think that's that's a general principle. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you find is that people in Italy and Spain that do that often don't have any breakfast other than a, an espresso and a cigarette. So yeah. it doesn't count. Um, so they are resting their gut probably for longer than many people in the UK. So, you know, they're, they're perhaps redressing the harm they do by um, eating a bit late in the day, but they uh, make up for it by giving themselves a bit of a more of a rest in the morning. Whereas in the UK, culturally and 
on all the government websites, you're told never to skip breakfast. And so uh, you'd, you'd have a late snack in front of the telly, be munching mm. your bit of fruit cake, you know, 11 o'clock with your cup of tea and you go mm. to bed. Uh, 7.30, you could be tucking into your Rice Krispies. So right. you haven't time to recover. So, yeah. um, you know, we know the ideal uh, and I think the ideal is going to vary between people. Mm. Uh, some people are morning people, some people are evening people. But the key seems to be to leave 14 hours overnight when you're not eating or drinking anything that's going to yeah. stimulate the system. And generally, you know, you exercise and you eat during the day and you re rela relax, de-stress at mm. night. And that is generally good for your metabolism and your circadian yeah. rhythms. I, fi I find the f whole thing about fasting quite quite interesting. The whole morning of like, well, I mean, technically Italians don't... As Oh, a cigarette and a coffee is not really fasting, but I recently did um, a two-day fasting. Um, it does count as if it's black coffee. Is it really? Yeah, if it's black coffee, but obviously if it's if it's got milk or sugar or that, obviously it's not it's not the same thing. But they don't, just... they don't they don't often have it black. You know, no, it, no. It's usually cheap with the sugar, but um, yeah, yeah. The... But but I I did I did two days recently because I watched the Chris Hemsworth uh, unlimited uh, limit limitless series on on Disney. Um, but he did four days and I did two days and I, and I was perfectly fine and, and I felt really, really great the next day. And then, I, and I kind of was subconsciously doing fastings in the morning that I wouldn't really eat until like 12, 30, one o'clock, but there's a lot of science on fasting. And I don't think a lot of people know that they're potentially subconsciously fasting in the morning. Cause some people just don't eat in the morning and they're not constantly thinking, Oh, I'm fasting i'm just not i just not I, i'm not hungry or i don't I, I don't want to eat in the morning but there the, what what's the sort of the science on the whole kind of concept of fasting and the benefits of it or kind of the, the cons of it uh well it's it's kind of complicated because you know the term fasting is a very broad so if you've got intermittent fasting you've got all kinds you've got things like two-day fasts where you know you just have just have water only for two days yeah this is what i did which is quite an extreme fast and uh, <laughs> hard, hard to see how you can sustain that for years, although some people do. Yeah. Um, um, and some people use that as a reboot or as, you know, a, a thing they do every six months or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but that hasn't really been tested long term mm -hmm. uh, other, other than in animals. Um, then you've got what used to be called 5-2 fasting where you would have less calories uh, two days a week and you have 500 calories say and then normal the other time so you're just reducing and then the next day eating what you like uh, then you've got time restricted eating where you're not restricting the calories uh, in in that technical form of a fast but you are uh, just putting your eating time into 10 hours rather than 14 mm -hmm. and so you're, you're having an overnight fast but in theory, you're, you're not saying eat less calories, mm. and 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 they're they're all they're all quite different, and uh, obviously you've got other people, you know, particularly in California, who might be on very low calorie diets long term because they believe it helps longevity, and most of the studies are showing that the only sustainable one is time restricted eating, where you're just changing your eating pattern, not actually starving yourself episodically. Mm. Um, and 
that data is about 20 studies now show that people who do that have met better metabolic parameters, their blood workup looks much better. And some, but not all studies uh, show you can lose a little bit of weight off that. But you feel most people feel better. And in our our studies of 110,000 people, which is a lot bigger than most of these other studies, we normally have about 20 people, mm-hmm. um, just with a, a 10-hour eating window, they're getting 10% improvements in energy, mood, uh, reductions in bloating and other bowel symptoms, et cetera. And, and how, as strangely, uh, a lot of people say they get less problems with appetite when they do it. So it's hard the first week and then the second week um, actually they have less cravings, mm. which is kind of interesting. So um, I, but what we do, we do know from these studies is that people subconsciously don't snack as much. So like you, if you know, you've got, you, you know, you want to finish eating before everything before nine, you're not going to have that bit of sandwich and leftover fruitcake at 10 30 at night, uh, no. just before the bed. Um, and that seems to be the, one of the reasons it's helpful. You're just more aware of your body's needs and uh, mm. you can cut out some of the food environment that, that's around you and all the temptations and things. So mm. that's why it's, it's looking like it's something that's here to stay. And it's something that we encourage on the Zoe program because, you know, we're not constricting calories. And I think that means you can focus on the quality of the food and you know not yeah. remo- not removed from the pleasure of eating yeah because uh, there's so even my, my whole family not my father but my mom and dad my mom and my sister they calorie count quite often and i've never really understood the idea of counting your calories i've i i sort i sort of understand it but i i don't really get it in a way because i'm just like i'm all about the quality of the food and if you're only allowing yourself 1000 calories, but I also understand because when I was younger, I needed so many calories just to put on weight, but then I was eating the wrong food. So I'd eat like just donuts and, but then I'd also mix it with like brown rice and chicken. But I was like, just to, if I could get an extra 800 calories by eating two donuts at the end of the day, I would, but I'm, I, I find it the whole, it's quite obsessive to think about every calorie that you eat and calculating how much you can and then going, Oh, well, actually maybe I shouldn't eat. If I eat that this now, I shouldn't really eat this later on, or I shouldn't really eat this tomorrow. I don't know what were your thoughts on that are. No, I agree. Totally. I think um, calories are one of the worst, uh, the biggest problems for our health at the moment is we, when anyone discusses food, they, the number one thing they talk about is the C word. You know, it's like, oh, it's all about calories. It's about calories in, calories out. Simple. You know, it's our body is just this very boring, simple furnace that uh, has a little control on it. It says, you know, uh, women have 2,000 calories and anything above that you put on weight, anything below you, yeah. you lose it. And that's just so much nonsense. And uh and also people are fooling themselves. They think they can count calories accurately. You've got no idea really what's going into you. Manufacturers are allowed 20% ranges on error. Uh, restaurants about 50% because of the portion sizes and the structure of food. You know, 
can have twice the difference, but it's all labeled the same because, uh, you know, one's refined and one's the whole plant. So it, it's not an accurate science at all. And but for me, the biggest thing is it's disguising the poor quality of food so that, uh, you know, your family, instead of choosing healthy, high fiber, real whole food plants might go because they, you know, to a supermarket where they see, OK, let's go to the low calorie section and get a, a ready meal that has 20 chemicals in it um, and lots of substitutes and artificial sweeteners and things in it and still and is, you know, but it's only got 300 calories or something. And it will make them much hungrier and it will make them overeat for the rest of the day. And it will deprive their, you know, their microbes of any nutrients. And so long term cause ill health. So I'm really against it. And the other thing is that, you know, people who do this, very few people can do this long term and lose weight. Um, mm. The vast majority, and we're talking perhaps 90% in real life, um, who do do this revert within a few years to their starting weight and many overshoot and, and go higher. Because for every kilo you you lose in weight, you increase your appetite levels. And so your body is trying to get you to reset that initial thermostat. And so everyone loses weight for, say, six weeks. Most people can carry on for maybe for a couple of months. Mm. Then your metabolism slows right down and your body is screaming, eat more food, eat more mm. food. Every but time you see food, is, it, that's is it i find it interesting because when i when because i live in los angeles i can i can tell like a total difference between food in la in california and food over here i can there's such a massive difference and to get actually good quality food you have to pay quite a lot of money compared to if you were here paying the sat that same amount equivalent of money you'd you'd be paying more than you'd pay at Waitrose, and you'd uh, or like I mean, they have a store called Air One, which is like sort of like the creme de creme of like really fancy food. And I find it fascinating how we are now in a position where I feel that food is food quality is going to be becoming the same as sort of the American standard because of obviously Brexit and the way that we're you we're doing deals with food and stuff and. Is that do you find that there? Because I I also know a lot of people, my friends who are basically in the countryside, are buying their own farms and buying animals and um creating their own kind of ecosystems so they can produce their own food on hand rather than be at the mercy of these superstores and stuff. How do you find that the quality of the food is going to be affected in the next couple of years? Well, I mean the trends in both the US and the UK are looking bad. I mean, we're eating more and more ultra processed food every year compared to real whole foods. So and in the US, in both countries, you know, there's a split between the well off and the um, and the more deprived with uh, the gap getting bigger between the groups. So it's very hard to sort of generalize across countries about um, uh, what's happening on average, because it doesn't really reflect uh, where these groups are going. And uh, I think, you know, California is a bit like, you know, 
the rich parts of London, well, you know, the, the richer parts of California anyway, in that, you you know, you can get lots of uh, whole food, um, you can get your fermented foods, you can get things that aren't ultra processed, and people are able to cook from scratch or buy meal boxes that they have to cook themselves. So, um, you know, I think that, but the general trend for the vast majority of both populations is downwards. It's, you know, many Americans don't buy, don't rent or buy kitchens that have uh, cookers in them anymore. They just have microwaves. Um, no way. There's a shocking statistic on that. Is that, is that, is that true? No. Yeah. So it's, I think it's about 10% of, um, uh, in, in surveys that uh, don't have a, a cooker anymore, just wow. takes up necessary space when they're eating out or they just have to heat up a pizza. So, um, you know, these are, these are really bad trends and it's school foods and things like this. So there's this really bad stuff, but at the same time in the, you know, the food communities, as you said, a much greater recognition about um, cutting out all these preservatives, emulsifiers, cutting out artificial sweeteners, um, all these things that, uh, you know, have crept into our system. Uh, so we're going to end up with these these two two worlds, I think, and very hard to, to go between them. Mm. But I, mean, I think it's everything nowadays is, is just going up in prices. Like, I example, when I go to get my coffee at Pret, it is usually like 99p. It's just like a standard filter coffee. It's got no milk. I'm, I try to like avoid drinking milk or oat milk or anything. So I get a pure fat um, filter coffee. And now it's gone up by like 60p. So if like my coffee is going up by 60p, imagine how much percentage is going up for of everything else in terms of food, fuel, everything. Like I just think there's going to be a, they're going to be come to a point where people just can't afford or are struggling to afford decent food in the, for the next year or in, uh, into next year or quality because food has just gone up in price. It undoubtedly has. And in the UK, 6% of it's gone up 6% purely because of Brexit. I mean, that's the other point, but it, but it's certainly, I think I can't remember what's whether it's gone up about 70, 60 or 70%. Uh, but a proportion of that is Brexit. Others are, you know, world markets, etc. Um, what is interesting is where this food's gone up. Um, over, the, if you look at the trends over the last thirty years, it's come down relative to salaries and relative to other uh, household costs. So, um, for you know. We used it used to be a huge part of our family budget, and it's now you know much less than ten percent uh, on average uh, spent on food, and it's about one percent for rich rich families, and maybe you know twenty percent for for poor families, and so that's that's a big difference that's occurred. So anyway, the food revolution got it cheaper. We got used to very cheap food. Now it's starting to go. Uh, it was the cheapest it's ever been, really, compared to our household spending. Mm -hmm. it's, it's often these things are all relative, not absolute. And um, you know, 
I remember we couldn't, you know, our family was well off, but we couldn't afford a chicken every night. That was that was just for Sundays, right? Now you buy a chicken uh, for less than a pint of beer. So we forget this. And okay, that chicken might now be costing a, a pint of a half of beer, but it's still ridiculously cheap. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think we've got to put this into some historical context. We've got used to paying absolutely nothing for food and treating it as a really minimalist commodity. And I think we've got to start realizing it is absolutely crucial for our health. It's crucial for, you know, our enjoyment. It's also crucial for the planet. And so the choices we make on food have been totally undervalued. Um, and, you know, we've valued things like buying a house or a nice car or, um, you know, university tuition fees or whatever it is but um always to get the cheapest possible food in you know i'd say anglo-saxon cultures uh, it's not the same when you go to the mediterranean they still want will pay for the best quality stuff even yeah. the poorest and they would not be deprived of the best quality olive oil you know even when uh the house is falling around them and yet um you know i think this is something the the British exported to, you know, North America as well. This this idea that um, food was just a fuel. It wasn't really a, a key part of our culture as it is in other places. That's what I love about the Mediterranean. And I love like those places because they treat food like, I don't know, like a religion. Like they just really appreciate it. What, like your oil and your, your, like in Naples, like with the tomatoes, like, we don't really have the same connection to food. And I don't know why that is, though. And I don't know if, if that can change. Yeah, well, my theory is that, you know, the U US and the UK never really got a very firm food culture. Uh, and maybe because we were more keen on um, very basic products. The, the old old adage goes that, in Britain, you could always just kill a, a cow and you had, you know, meat for the whole family. You didn't have to worry about sophisticated cooking. And we had peas, you know, made peas, mashed pudding as porridge. It was all fairly straightforward. Um, but I think uh, we, we lacked that grandmother culture that uh, many countries have, that the grandmother taught the grandchildren how to make these classic dishes, which their grandmother had taught them. And... That was passed on and, and and the love of the ingredients, the love of that tradition was was passed on, you know, like a religion. And maybe it's Protestant countries rather than Catholic. I, I, I'm not quite sure uh, where it all went wrong, but it sort of makes sense. And um, my Spanish friends, my Italian friends, they, you know, they will go to a tomato and they will stare at it in wonder and... <laughs> be you know happy to talk about tomatoes uh whereas we just stick it at the back of the fridge and and uh you know hope it doesn't go moldy and it, they know there are 20 different types of tomato and that you never put them in the fridge most uh most of us don't know that and these these are these things that were passed down and you know there are in the uk might be passed down how to make a cake or something uh you know that granny made you but you wouldn't have this whole suite of recipes and, and foods mm. that you're going to pass down the traditions that 
will never change. And um, we've just gone with the latest technology. And, you know, margarines come in. A few doctors say fat is bad for you in butter. The whole of the UK and the US change, right? They didn't change in Spain and Italy and the south of France. And my wife didn't change because she's Belgian. But, you know, it's a very different mindset. Uh, they know instinctively what, what is good and um, they're not swayed by marketing, publicity, you know, stickers of vitamins and things like this to a large part. I mean, I think they're starting to lose the plot because the pressure of the food companies is enormous, but um, it's, it is refreshing when you go there and you still see those markets. Mm, my favourite. They don't shop every two weeks in a supermarket. They shop, uh, you know, on a near daily basis. Mm, so great um so as we come to a close of the the episode which uh, i've really really thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and talking about all about food because it's making me quite hungry now um but we love to do a give back to our audience and the give back is essentially something you have been inspired by yourself um or you would give an inspiration to someone else and that could be either something from your book um, a quote or it could be someone else's book or podcast or a poem or a, a painting what would you give back to someone to inspire them or your younger self are oh, you throwing this on me now I, um, I haven't got anything prepared at all what i would um my gift to the world sort of thing yeah um, one gift you would give to the world what would it be what would that gift be it might it might even it might just be like thinking about food in your because we like i think when i was even when i was at young when i was at school like we did like um cooking classes but really not really that and then and not even not really that complicated and then they took it off the the curriculum and now we don't they don't my, some of my friends children's don't really learn anything about food but I think that sort of two two main things I wish that schools or three main things I think schools should really sort of talk uh, to train is business is businesses investing money tax second one is food nutrition and third one is communication and relationships and self awareness and that's sort of my three things that I think people should kind of go back into the schools but I would love to know what you would give back I think uh, you know sending the message to everyone that how important food is, uh, not only from a pleasure point of view for yourself, as I said, the most important choice you can make for your own health and the health of your family is your daily food choices. It's also now the most important contribution you can make to climate change is mm -hmm. by uh, selecting the right foods to eat. And I think spreading the word that uh, when you, you know, change the way people think about food. I'd love everyone to start just saying, okay, everything I've heard up to now, you know, calories and all this stuff confused me. But if, if we just go back to basic, yeah, you've got to love it. It's the most fantastic thing to do. If you eat food socially, you're going to live longer, you know, because this is how humans have evolved to eat around a fire together. It's a communal activity. We have to love it. We mustn't demonize it or start making it, you know, obsessional but embrace it, embrace its diversity, and realize that you know, with 100 trillion microbes inside your gut, you're never gonna eat alone again. And I think that's a good message that whatever you put in your mouth, you're sharing with all these other creatures that are keeping you alive and keeping you healthy.
Mm. Well, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you for that final note. And you have been 360'd. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to our awesome guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our astonishing episodes released every Sunday, 12 p.m. We are available on all listening platforms, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram for more discussions, education, and inspiration at 360 underscore yourself. The host, that's me, Jamie Neal, on Instagram at JamieNealJN. And once again, thank you for listening, and remember to 360 yourself.